0: Hey y'all, this is May, and I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. This season, I'll be discussing murders from the year 2000 through 2009. Today's story is of a male murderer from 2008. So grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to the year 2008. In 2008, there was a writer strike against Hollywood studios, networks, and production companies, demanding a percentage of revenue instead of a fixed fee for internet content. The strike lasted three months. That same year, the most popular movie was The Dark Knight. Another thing that happened in 2008 was a man holding a bloody knife surrounded by concerned citizens. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. Juan Sigelmopol grew up in Peru, and when his mom, Ada Aranda, came to America in 1988, Juan decided to follow just five years later. He lived in New York City for a while, working at a fast food restaurant, but his life changed after a terrifying event happened. While working one night, his workplace was robbed. They tied him up and left him in a bathroom. He was extremely traumatized by this event and suffered mental issues since this robbery. He went on disability for those mental problems and was unable to continue working. He had trouble sleeping, was easily confused, and had a problem remembering whether he had taken medication for his condition. In 2005, Juan decided he would move to Dallas to be closer to his mom, and he actually met a Peruvian woman whom he ended up marrying that same year. Yet, they eventually split up and Juan had a difficult time with this breakup. He had a hard time letting her go, and even started believing his ex-wife was sleeping with his brother, and that the two were plotting to kill him, even though it was believed she had moved back to Peru. The evening of September 12, 2008, Ada had an enjoyable evening with her son, and afterward, Juan decided he was going to go for a drive. But before leaving, Ada told him, be careful, because it's dangerous out there. Juan was enjoying his drive when he turned on Coit Road and spotted someone familiar, his estranged wife. Something came over Juan after seeing his ex. He pulled into a side street, parked his car, and grabbed a knife. All the rage that had been built up in him for the thoughts he believed to be true about his ex and brother flooded his mind. He walked right over to her and just started stabbing over and over again, 33 times he stabbed her. But as he continued to stab her, he started to realize this woman was not his ex-wife. Yet he persisted in his attack until Jose Gimenez drove by. Jose saw a man and woman struggling, and as he got closer, he saw the woman fall to the ground. The man stood over her, stabbing her repeatedly. He stopped his car and threw a seedy case out the window at the man, hitting him in the head and stopping the assault. Juan yelled at him, "'Is my wife?' in Spanish, and said that she had been cheating on him. People came to help but the woman was already dead. They surrounded the man who was still holding the bloody knife until the police got to the scene. But as police questioned Juan, they came to realize this was not his ex-wife. He and this woman were strangers. (music) Gladys Rivera Reyes was walking home from her job of three years at an Italian restaurant around 10.30 p.m. According to our manager, Marilla Heisenage, she started walking home from work to try and get more exercise. But on this night, she was attacked halfway to her house. When the manager heard of the attack, her and the rest of the employees, whom had known Gladys, took up a collection to help the Reyes family send her back to her native, Honduras. Only one of her family members made a statement. Her son stating through an interpreter, we've just never experienced anything like this before. Police charged Juan with the murder of Gladys Reyes, his mother Ada, finding out he was in jail through an article in a Dallas newspaper. His bond was set at $250,000 and he stayed in jail until his competency hearing in November 2008. The judge found that he was not competent to stand trial and ordered that Juan be committed to a state hospital for up to 120 days. In July 2009, the judge held another competency hearing where Dr. Michael Pittman testified that Juan suffers from chronic paranoid schizophrenia, that he was not competent to stand trial, and that he did not believe Juan would become competent to stand trial in the foreseeable future. The judge found that he was not competent to stand trial and ordered that he be committed to a state hospital for up to 12 months. And after another hearing in April 2010, the judge again ordered that Juan be committed to a state hospital for up to 12 months. But on February 14, 2011, The judge signed an order in which she determined that Juan was competent to stand trial. And on that same day, a jury was selected, and Juan pleaded not guilty. But the jury proceeded to find him guilty. The jury was instructed that they would return the next day for the punishment phase of the trial. The next morning, however, with the jury not present, Dr. Pittman testified that he had some concerns after speaking with Juan and believed he was not competent to stand trial at this time. The state asked that the case be continued so that another doctor could be found to evaluate Juan. Defense counsel opposed the motion and moved for a mistrial, but the judge granted a 24-hour continuance. The next day, the judge held a hearing outside the presence of the jury. The state called Dr. Christy Compton. She testified to having evaluated Juan the previous afternoon, and in her opinion, he was competent to stand trial. Defense counsel again moved for a mistrial. The judge granted the motion and dismissed the jury. On February 18th, the judge conducted a jury trial to determine Juan's competency. Dr. Pittman and Dr. Compton both testified at this trial. Dr. Pittman testified that he had seen and evaluated Juan three days before the competency trial and that in his opinion, Juan was not competent at that time and that he was incompetent to stand trial. Testifying further that Juan was incoherent when he evaluated him, and that he had illusions and hallucinations, and believed that Juan's symptoms were such that they would interfere with his attorney's ability to conduct an effective defense. In opposition, Dr. Compton testified that she had also seen and evaluated Juan three days earlier. In her opinion, his mental health was severe, but that he did meet the criteria for competency at the time of this competency trial. She supported her opinion with rational reasons, such as the fact that Juan had communicated with her relevantly and coherently during the 90-minute interview, and that he was able to tell her what had happened in his criminal case before she evaluated him. He also understood his hallucinations were part of his mental illness, in that he was able to talk about his defense strategy and how he was going to assist his attorney. Both doctors testified that Juan was suffering from schizophrenia. As of 2011, Dr. Pittman was a psychiatrist with about 20 years of experience in evaluating criminal defendants for competency to stand trial and also in evaluating insanity defenses. Dr. Pittman had also seen Juan about seven or eight times over an extended period of time and that he had prepared four reports about Juan's competency. By contrast, Dr. Compton was a psychologist with about 12 years of experience in evaluating criminal defendants and treating people with mental illness. From her own testimony, it appeared that Dr. Compton met with Juan and evaluated him only once, three days before trial. According to an article by Tarrant Defense, a competent defendant in Texas must have sufficient present ability to consult with his attorney with a reasonable degree of rational understanding and must have a rational and factual understanding of the proceedings against him. To be found incompetent, it must be shown by a preponderance of the evidence that the defendant lacks at least one of these abilities. Juan Seghilmable was found competent to stand trial. I want to introduce you to Cereal Killer Sweets. The owner is a fellow true crime junkie and named her business after it. These treats are delicious from Rice Krispie Treats made with all different types of cereal and also cookies and brownies this is the perfect dessert to snack on while listening to your true crime podcasts. You can find out more on their website or follow them on Instagram at Serial Killer Sweets. A few days later, on February 22nd, the defense filed a motion for continuance in which his attorney asserted that she continued to have concerns about Juan's ability to remain competent throughout the trial. She also stated that their expert witness would only be available to testify on February 24th, but the judge denied this motion and called the case to trial that same day. Juan pleaded not guilty, but the jury found him guilty. Juan requested that the judge would decide his punishment and the judge sentenced him to life in prison. They appealed this case but were denied and something of interest came to my attention while reading the Court of Appeals case files. The prosecution had an issue with the case even though they won. This is called a cross issue and to my understanding The prosecution took issue with the jury charge, which I explained in my last episode. But to recap, it is the judge's instructions to the jury before they go to deliberate. During the trial, the judge admitted into evidence a video of an interview between Juan and the officers conducted after the crime in question. The judge included the following instruction in the jury charge over the state's objection. So if you find from the evidence, or if you have a reasonable doubt thereof, that prior to the giving of the statement by the defendant, if he did give one to Detective Perry, the defendant was mentally impaired to such extent as to render his statement not wholly voluntary, then such statement would not be freely made and voluntary, and in such case you will wholly disregard the alleged statement and not consider it for any purpose nor any evidence obtained as a result thereof. The state made two objections to this instruction. The state argued, first, that there was no evidence of involuntariness to warrant the instruction, and it argued in the alternative that the specific reference to mental impairment was a comment on the weight of the evidence. The state asks us to review the judge's ruling, overruling, the state's objections, even if we affirm the judgment, in order to provide guidance and prevent errors in future cases. To me, that was a whole lot of legal jargon that I didn't fully understand. So in an attempt to break it down, they were basically saying that in the jury charge, the judge didn't need to give any instruction about the video, as there was no evidence that Juan gave any involuntary statements and made it seem the jury could look at his mental state and give it more validity than the evidence presented in the case. And although the state won this case, they want this objection to be reviewed to prevent this happening in future cases. The Court of Appeals stated that they cannot address a cross-issue in which the state merely requests a directive as to language or reasoning of the lower court, that does not impact the ultimate decision. We are affirming Juan's conviction, and the state would not benefit in this case from an opinion that the trial judge erred by giving the jury instruction in question. Thus, the state seeks an advisory opinion by its cross issue, and we cannot address it. So, the cross issue was also denied. Curious of the care Juan would get in prison for his mental health, especially due to how many times his trial was postponed due to his incompetency. This is some of what I found. In an article from 2018, Texas prisons provided regular treatment for roughly 20% of serious mentally ill prisoners. Back in 2014, after criticism and legal pressure, the Federal Bureau of Prisons imposed a new policy promising better care and oversight for inmates with mental health issues. But data obtained by the Marshall Project shows that instead of expanding treatment, the Bureau has lowered the number of inmates designated for higher care levels by more than 35%. And although the Bureau of Prisons changed its rules, officials did not add the resources needed to implement them creating an incentive for employees to downgrade inmates to lower care levels. The Texas prison system created a mental health therapeutic diversion program in 2014 as part of an attempt to decrease the use of solitary confinement to shift isolated inmates back into the general housing population. The program has seen some success with almost 500 men moving from solitary back into the general population. But there is little information on the program outside of the agency, except for some inmates who have said in letters to the Tribune that the program largely operates as a rebranded version of the isolated conditions they were already living in. As prisoners move through the voluntary program in Texas, officials say inmates are taught coping skills, stress management, and impulse control. They also gain privileges not provided in administrative segregation, like television access, more time out of their cells, and eventually group recreation time. But inmates and advocates say many of the therapies prisoners were sold on to prepare for a move into the general population, such as individual treatment, substantial group sessions, art, and music classes are either shorter than advertised or non-existent. Instead, many say they are kept locked in their cells nearly as often as when they were in solitary. I want to say a huge thank you to Press Reader, Texas Tribune, Case Text, and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. Please join me next week when we discuss a female murderer from the year 2009. If you are enjoying this podcast, I would love for you to hit the subscribe button I would also love for you to rate and review my podcast on iTunes, as it really does help out. I also want to say thank you to those who have gone to iTunes and given it a five-star review. I truly appreciate y'all. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram at crimesofadecadepod and on Twitter at Decade.com.